0: God intended, but maybe, maybe. Please take your copy of God's Word and let's turn to our next passage in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 uh, to 20 is where we're at in our study of Matthew. Uh, We will be breaking uh, for the week before Thanksgiving and just have a special Thanksgiving service, uh, a sermon I should say, and then we'll get right back into the book of Matthew. So today we're in Matthew 16 verses 13 to 20. And I want to begin by uh, giving us some thoughts that I hope will guide us in the direction that we need to be thinking this morning. And what I want to say is this, that God in heaven has given us the greatest message in the universe to proclaim. There is no message greater than what God has given us uh, through Jesus Christ. And I would dare to say that it is greater than what any Nobel Prize winner ever has achieved or ever will achieve, anything they've ever written, any scientific discovery or some other discovery that they've had. Our message is greater than any of those, and they will always be greater than anything that man can come up with. You know, I didn't look it up on the Internet because I didn't think it was that important, but I, I felt when I was going through this, I thought, you know, uh, have they ever given Jesus a Nobel Prize for anything? You know, <laughs> shouldn't he be the winner every year in every category? But uh, I don't know if they did or not. They should, and even uh, you can't even give it to him posthumous because he's alive. So and here we go. Uh, we have the key as Christians. We have the key to eternal life, uh, by which we are able to help people open the gate of salvation. For people to be able to dwell with God in complete and perfect fellowship forever and ever, starting in this life. In other words, God wants a relationship with us now, not just in the future. And there's a way to get that relationship. And you and I, as believers, know how to get it and know how to tell other people to get that as well. Our message goes beyond the grave into infinity. Our message does not end with this life. It's about this life, but it's about the next life as well. There is never a time that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what the Savior did, there's never a time that it will fail you. It will always uh, be with you and hold you to eternity. It is the single most important news in this universe that anyone can receive. And the news is you can be free of your sin, you can live with God forever and be in complete fellowship with him. Now, most religions of the world promise something like that uh, through different means, but they have different gods, and the Bible says that this one is the truth, and that this one is the only truth. So there are certain things that we can follow, and it may seem right, but it's not right, and it's not going to lead us where we need to be. The, the news about Jesus Christ is right, and it is going to lead us where we need to be. It is the most powerful event that can happen in anyone's life if they trust Christ as their Savior. It is the good news, and that's what the word gospel means. It's the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and he did that for our salvation, to save us from the penalty of our sins, which the Bible says is an eternity in hell. And uh, that's a a bad option. We don't want to take that option. We don't want anybody else to take that option if we can uh, do something about it. And we can. We can at least tell people how they can get into heaven. We can at least tell people it's free, it's for yours for putting faith in Jesus Christ, and he wants you to have it. So that gives us the authority to proclaim that if a person trusts Christ as their Savior, they will be healed of their sin, saved of the penalty of death, and they will land in heaven after this earthly life, and they will live there with God uh, in his presence forever. Uh, we have An eternally fatal disease of sin, and Jesus is the only answer and the only cure uh, to that disease if you want to look at it that way. And on the other side of the coin, we also have the authority uh, from the Bible to speak with people about what's going to happen if you reject Jesus, what will happen if you reject his love, what will happen if his free offer uh, goes rejected by uh, somebody in our life. We can do that. We can tell them. All right, let's look at our text in Matthew 16. And uh, this is a very uh, pivotal uh, theological text, and we want to make sure we understand it. In verse 13, it says this. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and so that's different than Caesarea Maritime, which is on the seacoast, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. And others say, you're Elijah. Still others have posited the idea that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, so he's looking at his disciples, but who do you say that I am? So he said, what do the people out there say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so we understand that uh, that past tense there is very important to understand. We're not to loose things ourselves. It's already been loosed by Peter. We're not to bind things ourselves. It's already been bound by Peter in heaven. So we get on board and do what's already there. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ or the Messiah. Tell no one, because Jesus is doing his best to stay alive until the time of his crucifixion, and that time is not yet. That's not now. It's coming in the future. So if you have your bulletin there and you're following along, that first outline point for verses 13 to 16 is this. The people are confused about who Jesus is, but the disciples are understanding. The people are confused about who Jesus is, but the disciples are they're beginning to understand this uh, this man and what he's all about. So the people are going to be those ones that the disciples talked to, maybe while they were on their mission trip, and they found out what people are saying about Jesus, and uh, you can do that too with one of your friends. You can keep your ears open and find out what people are saying about your friends or about me or somebody else, and uh, that's what they're reporting. Here's what people think you are. Here's what people think uh, that you're about. Well, we learn from the text in that first verse that Jesus has led his group to the Sea of Galilee. And that's about 25 miles, uh, uh, it's about 25 miles to the city of Dan from there. And this is where, at, in Dan, this is where the headwaters of the Jordan River begin. And they begin by springs of water. And then it goes down to the Sea of Galilee and then the Jordan River and on down uh, south of there. This is where Mount Hermon is. So uh, when we're talking about the district of Caesarea Philippi, we're talking about Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon's important to us because that's where the transfiguration is going to take place. When you go there, there are some rock cliffs there that are a part of the mountain. And it is formidable, and it goes straight up at the place we were anyway. Uh, I don't there's people that can climb it, obviously, but I couldn't. But there's the sheer rock cliffs as a part of the mountain. And those make a fitting backdrop to the teaching of what Jesus is about to teach and the point that he's going to make. So picture yourself, if you go to Israel, you can visit that, and in front of this, where this mountain is, is a flat area, and it's all cement, and they've got benches there, and a few trees are growing there they made uh, to come through the cement, and, and it's a flat spot. You walk up to this thing, and it's just huge, and there's a great rock wall, but there's carvings in the rock. And those carvings have to do with things about Jesus, and people put them there because this is the place where Jesus goes and appears uh, to the three, Peter, James, and John, in the Mount of Transfiguration. And so these grottos that are carved into the base of the mountain is where the ancients uh, didn't worship God necessarily, but a place of worship. And uh, some of them have to do with Jesus, but most of them do not. And the ancients worshipped a pagan god by the name of Pan, P-A-N there. And this was an ancient place for worshipping false god, and the place was called Panias. And false gods abounded everywhere in Jesus' day, and they abound everywhere in our day. So we must be careful to find the truth and not a lie. In verse 13, at this place, Jesus wants to know, how are the people identifying me as you talk to them and as you've been out on your mission trip? Because I think Jesus probably is referring to the fact that you were just went on a mission trip. I sent you out on that. What did you hear about me? What are people saying about me? And it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. It's also instructional for us at times to just stop and listen and hear what people around us are saying about Jesus. And if you will listen to people around you who are not Christians, who have not uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're talking about Jesus, you will soon understand that the pulse of the everyday man or woman about Jesus is wrong. It isn't the truth. And what they say about Jesus, what they think about Jesus, is at least not the entire story about Jesus from the Bible. It's in this place, Jesus wants to know, what is the pulse of the everyday person on the street with the issue of who I am? And today the average man or woman on the street is fairly ignorant of the biblical nature of Jesus. Even Christians are growing more and more ignorant about who Jesus is because in Christianity there's this big movement now where people are getting into syncretism, and we mentioned that before, where they take bits and pieces of other religions that they like, like something like karma or something like that, and try to incorporate it into their belief system when there is no place for that in your belief system if you're a Christian. And so we find Christians who are not really all Christian, they're, they're a Christian, and they might be uh, some other, other uh, uh, religion that they've mixed things in with and say, well, that's true too. And the Bible says, no, it's not. And so they don't understand who Jesus really is. The man on the street is going to say, well, Jesus loves everybody. He cares about everybody. That's true. He cares about everybody. That, that is all true. But they also say, everybody gets to go to heaven. That's a lie. That's not true. They say that every, nobody has to suffer punishment. You can believe whatever you want, and you'll end up in heaven. No, you can't, not according to the Bible anyway. So the average man on the street or the average woman on the street is fairly ignorant about what the biblical Jesus actually is, who he is. He, yes, he's love, and yes, yes, he uh, has, a, has a loving nature, but he will also condemn people to an eternity in hell if they don't take the remedy for the disease that they have, which is sin. The people on the street, their Jesus is one who only loves people. He never would condemn people. And he is sending everyone to heaven. That's what the person on the street who doesn't know what the Bible says it says about Jesus. Everybody gets to go to heaven regardless of what they believe or regardless of how they live. Not that living a good life gets you into heaven. It doesn't. We know that. But we're, God wants us to live a, a good life. But not for the reason of getting into heaven. God is not going to send everyone to heaven regardless of what they believe. We get so tired of hearing people say that in Christianity it teaches that Jesus says everybody gets to go to heaven. No, he doesn't. Not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, You may believe that, but it didn't come from his book. Because his book doesn't say that at all. Well, in verse 14, uh, they're going to start answering Jesus. uh, "What What are some of the people out there on the street saying about me? So the apostles are going to weigh in. Uh, with the things that they've heard about Jesus. Probably a lot of it was gleaned from their mission trip, but I'm sure they've been around people all the time, so what are people saying? Do you ever listen to what people say about Jesus? I stood right out in front of our church with somebody one day, a lady, and uh, she wanted me to be convinced that Jesus says uh, that uh, good things happen to good people and that, uh, well, other other things that are absolutely unbiblical And not the truth, like God helps those who help themselves. And I asked, show me that in the Bible. Where does it say that? It doesn't say that. And the other thing you said, the Bible doesn't say that either. Where are you getting this stuff? It's not from God. So why are you applying it to Christianity? Because that's not what Christianity says. And so they're going to talk about this. And their response clearly show that they recognize Jesus as some sort of a man of God in a Jewish setting. Today, people recognize that Jesus was a good teacher, that he was a great guy, that he loved everybody. They recognize that, but they don't recognize the rest of what the Bible says. And that's a mistake. And these people made that mistake. But He's some sort of a man of God, you know, like John the Baptist, or they say like Isaiah the prophet, or like uh, Jeremiah, or like one of the prophets. Uh, it couldn't, doesn't have to be those two, it could be any other one. And so they know he's a religious guy. They know that he's, he's something to do with God, but they don't think he's God. They don't, they don't know that he is the son of God. They don't know that he's the promised Messiah. And it shows they believe also in a resurrection from the dead, since uh, these are dead people that they say Jesus is a candidate for being, and he's not that. It shows that they think he is uh, connected to the, the God of Israel, Yahweh, somehow, but they don't believe in him the way that is necessary for salvation. I hope you heard that. The way that it is necessary for salvation. You can't make up your own Jesus. You can't make Jesus into something the Bible says he's not and have a Jesus who can save you because that isn't Jesus. I hope you understand that. People make up a Jesus. It's not the biblical Jesus. A non-biblical Jesus cannot get you into heaven. He has to be the Jesus of the book here. He has to be the Jesus the way God describes him. And uh, you, you can't you can't say that, and then have the right Jesus and have salvation. Uh, in the In the Mormon religion, they say Jesus and Satan are brothers, and that Jesus took the sins of the world and laid them on Satan. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, there's another group, the Jehovah Witnesses, who say Jesus is not God. Uh, he's a good man, and uh, we revere him, but he's not God. If Jesus isn't God, he can't save us. Um, it's like Muslims, who say that Jesus is a prophet, and yet they deny what Jesus said about himself. If he really is a prophet, why don't you listen to him? If he really is a prophet, understand what he actually said, and you find out he's not what you think he is. Well, friends, it's into this context that Jesus poses this question to the disciples that reveal what uh, they think about his identity. So in verse 15, we've got what the world says. He says to them, Okay, that's what everybody else is saying. But you, who've been with me, you who walk with me every day, you who who am I have I have been discipling? Who do you guys say that I am? This is a test. This is a big quiz. There's only one right answer. And you've got to get it right. So Jesus says, "Okay, that's what everybody else is saying. Well, what do you say? You know, there's a time in life you just need to abandon public opinion." And we need to abandon public opinion about Jesus if they don't know who Jesus is and go right to the teachings of the Bible, and this is where this question ought to be answered that Jesus asks. This is a one-question quiz. It is pass or fail, and the public failed the test. There's only one right answer. Will the disciples get it right this time? Have they at last uh, come far enough in their theological understanding about God that they can tell Jesus what he needs to hear? Well, not far from here will be the event that reveals the true glory of Jesus on Mount Hermon. It's called the Transfiguration. Where Moses and Elijah show up and Peter, James, and John are there and Jesus appears himself an unveiled glory which gave them a glimpse of the kingdom and what Jesus really is. And so right through his flesh, he he shone so brightly they couldn't even hardly look at him. And that's going to happen here pretty soon. Uh, in our text, but in verse 16, Simon Peter, the leader now of the apostolic group, the leader of the disciples, uh, an equal among others, Simon Peter answers the question, and he simply says this, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Most of Israel is saying you are not the Christ, and you're not the Son of God, and we're going to put you to death for it. Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, because that's the word that, that Christ refers to from the Old Testament, Mashiach. You are the Christ. You're the chosen one of God. You're the anointed of God. You're the one that they, that they promised in the Old Testament to send. You're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. See, that's the right designation of Jesus. He's not a God among many gods. He is the God of the, of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not three gods, but one God, three in one, and you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's your relationship to the Father. So if we were grading Peter on this quiz, he gets an A+. plus, Not an A+++. plus plus plus. I get sick of that stuff. A plus is good enough. That's everything. And I want to ask you this question since we're talking about this. Is this how you would answer the question as well? Do you believe he's the chosen, anointed one of God who gave up his life to pay for your sins on the cross? Do you believe that? And having believed that, do you understand that he is the son of God and he gave you eternal life and forgiveness of sins forever? Peter gets it. And I think he's just speaking for the others as well as their leader. They're starting to get it too. So in verses 17 to 19, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It didn't come from human beings. It didn't come from your own capacity to reason. It didn't come from your high intellect, Peter, as a fisherman. It didn't come from your great training. It didn't come from a book that you read. He says, this did not come from flesh and blood. That's not what revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This came from God. The information about about Jesus is correct, and it came from God, and Peter spoke it. And Jesus recognizes, look, you couldn't have got that from men. The Father gave that to you. And since the Father gave that to you, then here's what's going to happen. I also say to you, that's singular in the Greek text, that means Peter, you are Peter, Petros, the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overpower it. Verse 19 says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So our point here is this. Since God revealed this to Peter, Jesus gives him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What do you do with those keys? What's he going to do with those keys? We're going to talk about that. These verses have been the focus of a lot of different views, theological debates between churches. And uh, because it's so pronounced, I'm going to talk about the doctrines of the Catholic Church as opposed to the doctrines of Protestant churches. Why are we called Protestants? Because the great, the great reformers, Luther, Zwingli, Jan Hus, others, they all went against uh, the Catholic Church in terms of what they believe about the Pope. So that's, this is where the debate comes from, because God, through Jesus, gave Peter the keys of the kingdom, all right? Uh, the Catholic theology is that Peter, is, his position is passed down to the pope, the next pope, and then the next pope, and that pope has the authority of Peter, and, and when he speaks in a papal bull, ex cathedra, it is the words of God, and it's on par and level with the words of God, and uh, we, don't, we don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. That's what I'm talking about here. Uh, the greatest debate is over uh, what the catholic church claims about peter and his what we're going to call his primacy and it's where they get their view of the papacy and the succession of the papacy all right two views are uh, germane to this debate one has to do with the primacy of peter in this particular passage and other another one has to do with him being or not being the foundation of the church of jesus christ I'd like to interject a a couple of uh, New Testament scholars. Actually, one's an Old Testament scholar as well. Dr. Ross says this about this issue that I brought up. But both these views have probably been developed mostly in reaction to Roman Catholic teaching based on this passage. And yet, to say that Peter is the rock would be the normal way to interpret this line in the text. However, and this is important to say that Christ was going to build a church on the foundation of the apostles does not in any way teach an apostolic succession or papal infallibility or exclusive authority for successors of Peter. Those doctrines were developed later, not by Christ, not by the apostles, but later, and all the text would be saying is what the rest of the New Testament affirms, that Christ established his church on the apostles, their teaching, their writing, their scripture, they're establishing and organizing the church, all were necessary ways that Christ began to build his church. Now, uh, Dr. Bloomberg says this, I'm sorry, Blomberg, at any rate, there is obviously nothing in these verses of the distinctly Catholic doctrines of the papacy, apostolic succession or petrine infallibility, or the Protestant penchant for Christian personality cults. Man, that's a mouthful, and I'm glad he added that. <laughs> or the Protestant penchant for Christian personality cults, churches built around people instead of Jesus. In verse 17, Jesus realizes that the Father is the one who gave this revelation to Peter. I want you to understand that the truth can't come from somewhere else. This did not come as a result of human effort or intellectual engineering. Friends, it never does. The realization that Jesus is the true God and the Son of God is a revelation that comes from the Father to a person. It does not come from flesh. This revelation, especially in light of the answers of the person on the street about who he is, is clearly from heaven. It is the truth. It's not from men. It's from God. And by the way, when we come to Christ today, it's not from men. It's from God who reveals the truth to us. In verse 18, Simon is blessed by Jesus for this answer. Not just so much that his answer is so wonderful, but that Jesus realizes the Father has picked him out as the leader of the group by revealing it to him. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, and Peter means rock, you are Peter, and on this rock, Jesus will build his church. Now, Protestants shy away from the rock being Peter because of the Catholic doctrine of the papacy partly being built on it. We mentioned this above, but the clear meaning is that Peter is the rock, not just his confession. This text was originally most likely written in Aramaic, uh, the language of Aramaic, and the truth there is that the, in that text, there was one word used, kipha, or, or cephas, which means rock, for both of them, and there is no issue where in the Greek, rock is a is a feminine noun, and Jesus, of course, his name is a, is a... Uh, masculine noun. So see, people say he can't be the rock because it's feminine. In the Aramaic text, that doesn't exist at all. It's not even a problem. Uh, where there is no Greek issue with Peter being the masculine gender noun and the rock being a feminine noun. And there's nothing wrong with that either, uh, with, with other ways that happens. Peter answered for the group of apostles, and the prophets uh, make up the foundation that Jesus is talking about. The best, at best, Peter is the leader among equals. We learned that also the gates of hell will not ever have the capability to, f- to defeat or win a victory over the church. The gates of hell will not ever have the ability to overcome the power of Jesus Christ and the church. Rodin did his best job to illustrate what he wanted. Uh, it had been fascinating to see how he would have finished that. Because there's torment with those people underneath that, uh, that, that place where he's sitting, whatever it was. And you better, you better think about that. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gate of the city is where the elders dwelt. Jesus is probably referring to the devil and his angels as being represented here. Dr. Ross weighs in again and says this, Thus it would represent Satan or satanic forces and powers of hell who inflict death and destruction on the human race since Jesus the Messiah was building his assembly of believers the powers of, de- of death and destruction could not prevail. And I think that applies to eschatology in the church as well, the doctrine of last things. The last things that happen in this world according to Jesus' plan will not, will not be an affront or prevailing against the church. Death and the power of the enemy will not be able to, th- to thwart or do away with the success of the church. So in verse 19, Peter is given the keys to the kingdom. Of heaven. What's that mean? What did Peter do with those? Well, a key is something that allows you either to enter a place or lock a place and stay out. He's referring here to the kingdom entrance therein. And this is how people in church decided that the, uh, there's the gates of heaven. And St. Peter sits at those gates, and sometimes in a joke he's taking an inventory or, or he asks you to do a math question before he lets you get into heaven, which is all, of course, fake and false. But Peter has the keys to heaven. And so this uh, this arose in, in people's minds that he's at the gate of heaven and he's the one that lets you in or keeps you out. That isn't true at all. That's not what's going on. That's not what these keys were about. Note the translation here. What Peter locks or opens is a direct reflection of what is true in heaven. In the second part of verse 19, we expect and find a discussion that uh, that would uh, one where one would use a key for, and we read the verse and it says, it, "Wherever, where, I'm sorry, in heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." And that's what I'm talking about uh, in the in that particular in that particular case. As the one to whom the keys were given, Peter fulfills the mission that God gave him as a preacher, as somebody who went to places that did not know about Jesus or didn't understand him correctly and said, you need to know Jesus who loves you and wants you to go to heaven. And he's made a way that is for you to go that is free. And the way he opened the doors of the kingdom is that he went out and he preached in Acts chapter 2 to the Jewish people. They were there for Pentecost. And there would have been proselytes there and, and regular Jewish people, And he preached the good news of Jesus Christ, and it says 3,000 men, probably plus women and children, 3,000 men came to know Jesus as their Savior. These are Jewish people. And so Peter took the keys of the kingdom, and he opened the door so that the Jews have a way to become Christians and follow Jesus. So the door is open for the Jews. And then later on, he is called to an area in Samaria, Peter is, and uh, the night before, he had spent the night in Simon the Tanner's house. Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. Uh, th- that's later. Let's hold on to that. Uh, Peter is, is going to Samaria. And why do Jews not go to Samaria? Well, they don't go to Samaria because of the ancient uh, Assyrian relocation program. When Assyria defeated the northern part of Israel, Israel itself they would take some of the people out, then they would bring pagan nation people in and mix them with the Jews that are left. And so they started intermarrying, and they started uh, what what we used to call half-breeds in, in terms of uh, their, their parentage and their lineage. And so what happens is a Jew would not go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria to get to northern Galilee because uh, they felt that those people were like Gentiles. They're like dogs. They're like... You know, you don't want to touch him, But Jesus went there. And Peter now goes there. And he opens the door to the keys of the kingdom to those people that have uh, heritage in both areas. So he opens the key for salvation to the Jews. He opens it for the Jewish Gentiles. And then, after spending the night in Simon the Tanner's house, where no, no Jew in his right mind would stay there because it's uh, seen as unclean, but while he's there, he has this dream and God shows him, if I call something clean, Peter, don't call it unclean. And so then some men showed up at the door of Simon's house that night and said, look, uh, there's a, a, a Gentile that would like you to come and talk to him. And Peter arose and he went because of the dream that God gave the vision. And he goes to the, to the house of Cornelius and he's preaching to Gentiles. And it says that they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That in other words, the Spirit fell on them when they believed in God. Uh, they received that gift, and they are, they are Christians. So Peter took those keys, and through his preaching and his sermon and his ministry, he opened the way to the Jews. He opened to the Jewish Gentiles, and he opened to the Gentiles. There's, there's no other group. You're, you're part of one of those groups. It doesn't matter you know, uh, what, what, where you come from or anything. You're either a Jew or a Gentile, or you've got both. And Peter opened the door for salvation to all of them. That's a big deal. That's a real big deal, and I hope you see it that way, because uh, it's, it's for us. Dr. Ross said of this, a literal translation of this line would yield, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. If this is the translation, and I believe it is, there is no place for earthly ministers to claim the power. Uh, they simply speak for God and enact what heaven has enacted. And Because of that truth, I got a bad grade on an essay in my evangelism class because my professor believed that you had the right to tell somebody they could have their sins forgiven or you could withhold it. And I wrote my essay how I didn't believe that, and I didn't get a good grade. Um, but I, I think maybe when I get to heaven, I'll find out I got a different grade. Our job, friends, is to accomplish what has been loosed in heaven. The doors are open to salvation to every person. And let God be God where things are not loosed and bound. That's not our job to figure that out. Our job is to preach the gospel to every creature. So in verse 20, Jesus warns them, don't go around telling everybody I'm the Messiah because that'll start some situations that before their time. And he's trying to keep people from asking for signs in order to believe, he's got his hands full. He wants people to come to him and he wants wants that to be by faith as God revealed it to Peter and Peter acted on it. He wants them to come not for national zeal which is what the Jews want, they want him to be the Messiah and kick the Romans out. That's not what he came for but because of their need to repent and a desire to deal with their sin. And I sometimes wonder what people who don't know Christ think when I talk like this. When people, when people like us say, you need to be saved from your sins. And what does that mean? What do you mean, I'm saved from my sins? It takes some explanation. The Bible says we're all conceived in the womb as sinners because our sin came from what Adam and Eve did. And we're, that sin is inherited. It's imputed to us. So we're conceived in the womb as sinners. And if we continue sinners throughout our life, And we don't get the healing of Jesus' gift for us on the cross where he died for our sins. If we don't get that, if we don't take that and, and make it ours, then we end up in that place called hell. And Jesus has to punish sin. But he doesn't have to punish sin if you go to him and ask for cleansing. If you go to him and ask for healing. So when we say be saved, what we're saying is get rid of that penalty of death because of sin and get forgiveness for it. And Jesus is happy to do that. He wants to do that. So let me say a couple of things by way of application, if you're following along. Number one, the church will never be overcome or overthrown by the enemy. And I think that's also true in the end times. Secondly, we are working to bind what has already been bound in heaven And loose what has already been loosed in heaven. There's no need to loose anything more or bind anything more. It's already been done. We're just working inside those parameters. And pastors that say anything different, like it's up to them to do that, I have a real issue with that. Number three, the apostles and prophets are the foundation with Jesus as the chief cornerstone, which is exactly what Ephesians 2.20 says. We are building on what the, what the foundation is of Jesus, and we're building on the building that the apostles started. What are we building? A house for God. It's made of people who come to know Christ as Savior. So the Bible states that Jesus is the God and the only true Messiah, the only true Savior of the world. Many offer themselves as saviors from all kinds of different religions, and a person has to decide, and the only way you can do that is if God reveals it to your heart, that this is the truth, this is the way, this is what you need to do. And so we need to ask, have I trusted that? Is Jesus Christ the one I'm depending on to get into heaven? Or am I, am I thinking I'll be good enough and get, get into heaven with good works? When God said all of my good works are like filthy rags to him in Isaiah 64, 6 and other places. So I want you to examine your heart and ask yourself, would you like to go to heaven when you die? Would you like to have the assurance of that? Then all you have to do is recognize that Jesus has done the work for you and he's offering it to you for free. It's like a governor who has a pardon for somebody on death row and he writes out the pardon and they hand it to to the person in prison and say, all you have to do to get out of here is sign this piece of paper and you're free. Jesus said, all you have to do is believe that I paid for your sins on the cross. And in believing, you will have eternal life. So I'm going to challenge you today, if you've not done that, to accept the truth of God. And he will, he will indicate that to your heart. And trust that he is your Savior. Trust that he paid for your sins on the cross. Trust that you can have healing for eternity. If you want to talk about that more or you want to see some more Bible verses on that, I'm happy to show you Ephesians 2, eight and 9 says, For by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the events that took place at the base of Mount Hermon on that day. That, that the father, you father, you gave Peter the right understanding of your son Jesus. That he is the Messiah sent from heaven to pay for mankind's sins. and That he died on a cross and gave up his life to pay for those sins. A perfect sacrifice. And because of his perfection and because he died for us, we can by faith in him have forgiveness of our sins. And then the Bible says that he rose again from the grave to prove that he can raise us from the grave as well. Please implant that truth on our hearts if it hasn't been there, and may we respond in faith. And we ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. rise for our closing song i love to tell a story in the hymnal it's 297 we'll sing all three verses